This morning, if you want to open your Bible to 1 Thessalonians 4, catch, capture our attention this morning, we'll rapture our, our attention. Um, after studying the uh, Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapter 13, over the past two uh, Lord's Days, um, most of that sermon um, has to do with the destruction of of the then-standing temple, which occurred in 70 A.D. We went over that. Jesus made clear that this generation, that means that generation then living, would not pass away until all those things foretold would take place. Jesus gave them many signs. The the apostles, Peter, James, John, Peter, James, John, and Andrew came to Jesus and said, when will these things be? He says, they'll be this, they'll be that, but... Fear not, these are just the beginnings of birth pains, and those things would happen, earthquakes in various places, wars, rumors of wars, those things took place, but the end is not yet. Context, the end of what? Not the end of the world, but the end of the temple. But when you see these things happen, he says, get out of town. Luke tells us that when you see army surrounding Jerusalem, desolation is near. Get out. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away, said Jesus. But of that day, what day? Heaven and earth passing away, no man knows the hour. Not even angels in heaven. And Jesus in his humanity at that point said he didn't even know the hour. Of course, in his deity and glorification, he knows the hour. But as he was on the earth, he said, I do not know the hour. So we covered both those things, and and since the ladies um, are out, I want to postpone going into chapter 14 until they're back with us next week, Um, but I want to look at a passage of scripture um, that provides great hope for all believers of all generations uh, regarding the, the imminent return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I'm going to begin reading in, in verse 13, 1 Thessalonians 4, and I'll read through chapter 5, verse 11. This is the Word of God. Let's stand for the Word of God, shall we? Let's stand. It's a little different this week. This is, this is more of a teaching, so if you'll bear with me, if you're visiting with us, this may seem a little different than a, a standard sermon, but please bear with us. Uh, we, we have a, a point and purpose in it all. Verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, concerning the times and seasons, brothers, we have no need to have anything written to you, 
For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you're not in darkness. Brothers, for that day, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Father, we ask for your help this morning. And always needy people, for the ministering of your Holy Spirit, help me to communicate your truth by the power of your Spirit, for your people to receive it, that they'd be encouraged and strengthened. Lord, help us to put presuppositions aside and look at the text. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Jesus did say during his earthly ministry uh, that certain things must happen before he comes back. He said, um, Elijah must come. He has. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11 that John the Baptist is Elijah who is to come. Jesus said that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be raised. He has. Jesus said that the then standing temple must be destroyed. It has. The disciples will face persecution. They have. And the gospel must be preached to all nations. It has and it is. Therefore, the next great redemptive event to occur is the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in glory, consisting of, right here, the resurrection of believers and unbelievers, the bodily transformation of believers living when he comes, the final judgment and cosmic renewal of all things. One event, one event with several elements. Notice, loud commands, a trumpet blast, dead bodies raised. Okay, that is to say, beloved, that the appearing of the Lord and the day of the Lord is the same day. That is the rapture of God's people and final judgment upon the enemies of God all occur on the same day. Those destined for wrath, notice, those who obtain ultimate salvation through Christ, chapter 5, verse 9, God has not destined us for wrath. Wrath means the judgment of God, not tribulation, not trouble, but God's just punishment. So those who obtain ultimate salvation through Christ, chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, is the same day as chapter 4, verse 17. That's my case this morning. 
Now, this very encouraging text, very encouraging for the believer, um, is another that I believe has been mishandled and taught out of context. Context is everything. We learned that in Olivet Discourse. Amen? Right? Middle? Left. Yes. Context is everything. Context, context, context. I believe this has been taught out of context for the past 150 to 180 years, as we shall see, which we will examine after we look at the context and the great hope that is within. Okay? So, that's the introduction. So, let's begin. Uh, This letter, this epistle to the church of Thessalonica was written because there was a problem there. And that is that someone was running around in that local assembly as fellow believers were dying, and they were saying something like this. You know, it's too bad that, let's say his name is John. My name's John, so I'll use me as an example. You know, it's too bad that John died because he's going to miss out on the second coming. Because in order to participate in the second coming, you have to be alive on earth when Jesus returns. So they had plunged into hopeless grieving over those who had died in the faith. So Paul has to correct that erroneous assumption. And he provides them great comfort. Friends, that's the reason he wrote this epistle. Okay, that's the reason. That was the problem. So he he writes them. And I want us to see, first of all, some, some points of encouragement. Number one is that theology is for our comfort. So Paul writes he wants to comfort them, and here uh, the comfort has to do with regard to those who have lost loved ones who are in Christ. That's the first point, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed brothers. Now your translation may say we do not want you to be unaware or perhaps we do not want you to be um, ignorant. And Paul uses that phrase over and over um, in his epistles. In other words, certain things are very important, Paul says, for our understanding. It's very important that Christians understand the truths of this passage because this truth here, beloved, he says, is meant for your comfort. And God uses truth to comfort us, amen? Amen. Therefore, he says, do not be uninformed. Okay, about what? Notice, about those who are asleep. That's a metaphor for those who have died. For those who are asleep. That you may not grieve as others who have no hope. In other words, Paul says, I do not want you to grieve like pagans grieve. Notice he doesn't say Christians don't grieve. Because we all grieve, amen? I do not want you to grieve as those who have no hope. See, the pagan world then and now, beloved, is filled with hopelessness. Every time I do a funeral, some Christian will say, I don't know how unbelievers do it. Neither do I. Well, it's called common grace. We've been given special grace, special revelation through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Our hope is rooted in him. So Paul says, when you grieve the loss of loved ones, as you will, do not grieve without hope. Remember what Jesus did on his last night 
with his disciples in the upper room. Now remember, John, his gospel, chapters 13 to 17, consist of one night. And in that upper room, just hours before he would be betrayed, the disciples, the 11, they knew something was up. They didn't know what exactly was up, but something was up. Something's not right. So Jesus spent the majority of that evening teaching them about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'm going to be with the Father. I'm going away to the Father. And if I go away, I will come again and receive you to myself so that where, you, where I am, there you may be also. He, he taught about the Holy Spirit. I will not leave you as orphans, but I will send the paraclete. I will spend, send the comforter, the Holy Spirit. So what he did is he spent the, that part of the evening connecting their anxieties and, and their fears to theology. Belief in the one true God is what answers our anxieties, the anxieties of our souls. So he, he immersed them that night in truth about God in order to comfort them. Now, notice down in verse uh, 18, Paul is saying, brothers, encourage one another with these words. Okay, what words? Back up to verse 14, two things. Encouragement about the hour of death. Two things, Jesus' bodily resurrection and ours. Those two things. Verse 14, notice, for, okay, that's an explanatory clause, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. There is a clear answer to the pastoral problem in that day. Right there. Sleep, again, is a metaphor for death. Okay? So, so-and-so died, he says, church of Thessalonica, but his soul is in the presence of the Lord, and when our Lord returns, so-and-so, and all who have died in Christ, Old Testament, New Testament, are coming back with Christ. Why? Right here. To have their bodies raised from the dead. So they will therefore participate in the second coming. That's his point. That's his purpose. For writing. So Paul is grounding their hope in the bodily resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying what happened to your Savior will happen to you. If you're not alive when he comes again, okay, Paul is saying right here, since your spirit will be with him, you'll return with him. Okay, you're going to die just like he did. Not, not the kind of death, but you're going to die. You're going to literally die. But you're also going to be raised just like he was raised. This is the hope. Now, before Jesus breathed his last on the cross, he said this, Father, into your hands I commit my... Spirit, his body remained in the grave for three days. When we die, by way of our union with him, our spirit goes immediately to be with the Lord. Our body remains in the grave, not for three days, but until his second coming. You know, it's very interesting. Um, in, the, in the New Testament, it, it more often speaks of Jesus dying and believers falling asleep. Because it, 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 Jesus dying for us, in his death, if you trust in him, your death is simply an entry or a portal into glory. 
If you die this afternoon, fellow believer, your body will fall to the ground and you immediately will be in the presence of the Lord in heaven. Where Jesus is, is heaven. So wherever he is, that's heaven in, his, in the glorified state. That's the first encouragement. Secondly, is comfort and encouragement concerning those who are alive when Jesus returns in glory. In other words, the eschaton is for our comfort. Eschatology, remember, means last things. The eschaton is the very last thing. And the eschaton is also for our comfort. Notice verse 15. For this we declare to you, by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who've fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Okay, caught up, if you're alive, to be with the Lord, to do what? To me immediately return with him. Jump back over to chapter 3, verse 11. He's encouraging them. He says, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that... He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. All, pass, every, each, all, collectively, the whole is what that word means. To be caught up, to return with him. So notice the first event in view, Jesus will descend. With the voice of an archangel, sound of the trumpet. That's the last trumpet in our studies of Revelation. If you're visiting with us, we spent a couple, three years working our way through the book of Revelation. The last trumpet is always the last trumpet. The last. Second event in view, all simultaneous. The dead in Christ will rise, meaning every believer who's ever died throughout time meaning their bodies will be physically raised, joined with their spirit, which exists in the, what we call in theology uh, the intermediate state. That's where your loved ones who died in Christ are at right now with the Lord. Your spirit is with the Lord. That is the presence of Christ. So at the same time, notice, those who are living on earth, when that last trumpet sounds, notice, these bodies will be transformed, verse 17, and caught up together with them as Christ returns. So if he comes this afternoon, you will be immediately transformed. Your body will be transformed. You'll be caught up, raptured, good word, raptured up with those who have been with the Lord all the way back to King David and Moses, and their bodies will be raised, preceding you being caught up. That's the idea. These are all the events going on. Because these bodies can't rise up into clouds of glory. And I believe the clouds are clouds of glory. Uh, there's many problems with that, let alone in the presence of the glorified Lamb of God. So we will have to be transformed on the way up. Amen? Look at 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Verse 51. We shall not all sleep, 
but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the what trumpet? Last. Last means last. Not second to last, last. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. Okay, so again, not all sleep means not all die, metaphor. But we'll be transformed instantaneously and this will, <clears throat> will occur at the last trumpet, the second coming, which is the day of judgment, chapter 5. The appearing of the Lord, the day of the Lord, I think scripture's clear, is the same day. Next encouragement is encouragement concerning the inevitable but unpredictable day of the Lord. Day of the Lord has to do with judgment. Now, verse 1, concerning the times and seasons, brothers, brothers, believers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That language is coming right out of what Jesus said, remember, in the Olivet Discourse? He'll come like a thief. So Paul emphasizes here that the coming, also described in chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, we just read, is going to be sudden, surprising, especially for unbelievers. Look at the language he uses, verse three. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. They will not escape. So speaking of a world here that thinks everything goes on as usual, they're going to be met with great surprise. But you, verse 4, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day, what day? The day of the Lord, to surprise you like a thief. So notice verse 3, both believers and non-believers will be in attendance on that day. Now, therefore, he says, he goes on to say, in contrast to those who walk in darkness that is, those who walk in unbelief, we who have been brought into the light by faith, there's two things he wants to point out. Verse 6, keep awake and be sober. Meaning what? Jesus explained it in the Olivet Discourse. Be watchful. Be on the lookout. If you knew the thief was coming, you'd be ready. Thieves do not provide courtesy calls, as we looked at last Lord's Day. There is no call that says, I'm breaking into your house at 3.30 a.m. Of course not. He comes like a thief. So he says, watch. Okay, watch for what, beloved? What, signs? Are we already be looking for signs at the time of Jesus' return? The, the folly of this blood moon madness today? No. Because there are no signs. I will come like a thief. There were signs before the temple was to be destroyed. But before my coming, nothing. Be watchful. In other words, be watchful in the way you're living, anticipating the Lord's return. Notice to be sober. He uses that illustration, verse 7. 
For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. You know, I used to tell my kids growing up, teenage years, nothing good happens after midnight. Amen? I know. Daddy knows. Daddy knows, unfortunately. And you don't need to be out after midnight just because you're, oh, 16. Oh, 17. Or the magic number, 18. And let me tell you, loved ones who are going to be 18 or have turned 18, all that means is two things. I've said this before. Your parents no longer have to legally take care of you, number one. And number two, if you get arrested, you don't go to juvenile hall. You go to prison with the big boys. Don't be a fool. 18. Whew. <laughs> Side note. Now, there's no indication that the Thessalonians were abusing alcohol here. So this also must be seen, I believe, as a metaphor for self-controlled living. Using the things of this world with moderation as you watch for the glorious day of our Lord. In other words, if you think that this world is all there is, or let's say you're a Christian and, and you slip away, you backslide, and you begin to adopt thinking as though this is all there is, you'll be tempted to grab hold of as much of it as you can. And eventually, you'll ad ad adopt the philosophy of that uh, strange, flamboyant, uh, multi-millionaire who died, uh, Malcolm Forbes, who said, uh, he who dies with the most toys wins. He knows that's not true. Now. So he says, be watchful. So instead, rather than living like that, notice what Paul says. Paul says, I want you to cultivate some things. Faith, love, and hope, verse 8. Now, we live by believing the word of God, amen? We're people of faith. We believe in the word of God. We live by trusting the promises of God, putting our trust and faith in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, believing what God says in his word. Okay, we've been given this gift. Now, most of life, the life of faith, that is, is learning to trust in the Lord with all our hearts and to lean not on our own understanding. It's a big part of the walk because we struggle with it. Therefore, he reminds us of these things. So be watchful, he says. Be self-controlled. Live by faith. And he says, live by love. Notice, love God, right? Love one another. Uh, love your neighbor. Love your fellow congregational member especially. And it doesn't have to be said, of course, love your spouse. Faith, love, and verse 8, put on the helmet of hope. Not wishful thinking, not wishful thinking. He says, be sure and certain of the hope that he's coming again. Amen? Very encouraging. So how do you prepare for Jesus' coming? You're, notice, watchful. You're self-controlled. You live by faith, not by sight. You live in love. You live in hope. That's how you prepare, prepare for Jesus' coming. You don't sit out and gaze at the stars. Remember, some of these people in Thessalonica quit their jobs and were sitting on a hill looking for Jesus' return. Therefore, Paul said, if you do not work, you do not eat. That was the context. You're sponging off the church, expecting the glorious return of our Lord. Get to work. Amen? You're worse than an unbeliever, he says. That's the context. Okay, notice, fourth, encouragement 
that, that Jesus died so that we may live. Verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who, verse 10, died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live with him. Whether you're dead or alive, you'll be with him. A metaphor for whether we're dead or alive. Now, listen to the main flow of his argument here, beloved. In other words, he's saying, Jesus didn't die just so that we could be forgiven of sins. Now, that's very important, amen, because he did die that we be forgiven. But notice here, it's more than that. He died and rose again so that we might live with him. He is ours because we are his. We're in him forever. That's the greatest treasure in life. So we can anticipate his glorious return. This is the encouragement. Jesus quenched the wrath of God in our place. God hates sin. He judges sin and sinners. And in our place, condemned he stood, and we obtained salvation through him. By way of faith and trust in, in the crucified, resurrected Lamb of God. Now, in this life, you will suffer tribulation. In this life, you will suffer tribulation, but you will never suffer the wrath of God. The wrath of God is much different than tribulation. That wrath was satisfied in Jesus Christ, for he is the propitiation of God, the satisfaction of God's wrath. Therefore, verse 11, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. In other words, he says, keep it up. There you go. There it is. So with that simple, clear reading of chapters 4 and 5, what do we see? The certainty of the second coming. The certainty of the day of the Lord. The certainty of final judgment. So, so question, okay? And as I said two weeks ago, I'm in no way trying to be condescending. I'm just trying to teach the Bible. Question, is there anything at all in this passage that would lead us to the conclusion of a secret rapture where the Lord takes away his people for seven years? Is there any such thing expressed in this text? No, nothing except you've already presupposed it and you're reading it back into the text. That's it. Bear with me. Notice, a loud command, voice of an angel, the trumpet of God, three corresponding loud, loud actions. Why all the noise? This is the end. <laughs> this is the final consummation. This is no secret snatching away of anybody. This is a very public and booming arrival, not a private and quiet removal. It's loud. Friends, the Bible's quite clear. There is but one return of Jesus, not two. 
On that glorious day, Paul tells us right here, the dead in Christ will rise, the faithful still living will join them in the air to meet the Savior as he returns to earth to consummate his kingdom. And for us, we will visibly share in his triumphal reign over all, and at the same time, beloved, we will also with him judge the unbelieving world and fallen angels. Okay, look at 1 Corinthians 6. Verse two, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to, tr to try trivial cases? Remember the Corinthians, they were suing one another and all this. So, so Paul says, do you not know that we are to judge angels? We'll participate. Okay, so friends, follow me here on this. Unless you assume that God has a separate plan for national Israel and a plan for the Gentile church, you are not going to come up with a secret rapture ideology. And that is to quote one of the most famous dispensational premillennialists who just went home to be with the Lord a couple years ago, Dwight Pentecost. He said that. He said this. Unless you assume that God has a plan for national Israel and a plan for the Gentile church, you're not going to come up with secret rapture. Now, that's a very important and honest admonition. Amen? He was correct. If you hold to that presupposition, otherwise, okay, bear with me, otherwise you would never arrive at a secret rapture seven years before Christ returns. You would never see Christ return as two separate events, one being secret. Unless you held to that presupposition. We'll find out where that, well, where does that come from then? See, if God has a separate plan for national Israel and the Gentile church that are mutually exclusive, and I think scripture bears it out, he doesn't, then you have to get the church off the earth to have your seven-year tribulation, which also is not in the Bible. Just bear with me. Because that seven-year tribulation, that belief, centers around Antichrist making a peace treaty with Israel, which I believe is a terrible misinterpretation of Daniel 9, from which I read earlier. If you claim, in other words, that God has two redemptive purposes, a plan for national Israel and the Gentiles, my question is this, where is that in the New Testament? It isn't. Again and again, we read that God's purpose is to save his elect from throughout the what? The nations. The ethne, the nations. God has an elect remnant according to grace. When we read that all Israel will be saved, does that mean all Israel without exception throughout all time? No, all God's elect ethnic Israelite people will be saved according to the same plan of salvation as he will graft them back into the root. The root is Jesus, the Christ son of the living God, the Lord's true is, there's only one true Israelite, Jesus, 
who upheld every covenantal promise. He's the true Israelite. If you're not in him, you're not true Israel. So you are true Israelites because you're in the true Israelite Jesus. Yeshua. Yahweh saves. He'll graft them back in. Now, Ephesians 2 is very clear, verses 13 and 14, that the middle wall of separation has been what? Broken down, creating one new man in the place of the two. One new man. There is no Jew. There is no Gentile. We are all one in Christ, meaning what? There are no two peoples or two plans of God. There is one. I never get a lot of amens. (laughs) And I'll tell you why in just a minute. Now, I mentioned two weeks ago that I had tried to adopt this view, dispensational premillennialism, a number of years ago. I grew up reformed, never heard of a secret rapture until I came to California and started making friends with a lot of Calvary Chapel, beloved brothers and sisters who are obsessed by this stuff. And a favorite Bible teacher of mine who taught it. So I says, well, if he teaches it, it must be true. Until I studied it. I assumed that a secret rapture was true. And therefore, I was forced to make every eschatological passage fit into that assumption. Arriving as I did at so many passages that I had to squeeze into that framework in order to make them fit. So after studying it, after challenging my own presuppositions to the view, I realized that they are nothing less than an interpretive house of cards that crumble. They collapse at every point. Now, friends, loved ones, whenever we talk about subjects like the second coming or or the rapture, In our day, immediately, the majority of evangelicals resort to thinking uh, Tim LaHaye, Jerry Jenkins, the Left Behind series. Airplanes falling out of the sky, people disappearing. Because when they come to this kind of teaching, they are settled in their presuppositions, which means your heels are already dug in and you're put in a very difficult situation to learn. Are you with me, beloved? And sometimes when you get done with teachings like this, people will say, don't bother me with the details. I believe what I believe. I challenge you not to do that. Because presuppositions are dangerous, especially if you think you don't have any. (sighs) Amen? Especially if you think you don't have any. Especially if you think you're coming at this absolutely, totally objective, minus any kind of interpretive formula or framework that you lay over the text. You're forced to make it fit or the structure collapses. And that's the reason I had to relent. I spent four years studying it. And I forced, encouraged our elders to do the same so that they wouldn't just believe what I believe. Amen? And we're in the process with our deacons. It doesn't work. Friends, in other words, the church is not God's plan B. 
It's not God's plan B, or as some of my dispensational friends claim, the church is God's great parenthesis, uh, where after 69 weeks, okay, you remember the 70th week, 70 weeks, where they teach after 69 weeks of Daniel's prophetic 70 weeks, God pauses his prophetic stopwatch. He waits through a seven-year tribulation. That's the 70th week in their view. And he restarts it and goes back in with national Israel. Daniel's 70th week has been taught by our dispensational friends, and I emphasize friends, friends. Amen? Friends. I have many friends. Mark just spent Friday evening with four dispensational friends of his. We're not enemies, friends. Amen? We're in Christ. Thank you. Actually, I know dispensationalists who are more fierce towards my position, our position, than we are theirs. So it goes both ways. Thank you. Daniel's 70th week has been taught by dispensational people that the anointed prince is Antichrist in that Daniel passage, who during the 70th week which represents for them the last seven years of history, makes a peace treaty with Israel after after the Gentile church is removed off of the earth, raptured away, and then Antichrist turns on the Jews where there is the blasphemy of all blasphemies, a rebuilt literal temple with sacrificial system. That's blasphemy in the face of God for Jesus is the temple of God. The, the sacrificial system and the temple in the, in the sanctuary pointed to him. Therefore, when he came, he said, something greater than the temple's here. Here I am. I am the temple of the living God. The sacrificial system points to me. I've come to make atonement once and for all. Friends, Daniel 9 has nothing to do with a seven-year tribulation at the end of history, it's found nowhere in the New Testament. So where do we read a tribulation? Because it's in the Bible. Where do we read of tribulation? Well, the first reference that we read is with regards to Israel's great tribulation that they'll face in 70 AD. We looked at it two weeks ago in Mark chapter 13, the Olivet Discourse. For in those days, verse 19, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created in town and never will be. That language is found throughout the Old Testament. You read the same language right before God judged Egypt with the 10 plagues in Exodus 11:6. We read that same language in Ezekiel chapter 5 verse 9. So that great tribulation, everything Jesus is talking about in Mark 13 regarding these buildings, verse 2 of chapter 13, all the way through to the end of verse 27 has to do with 70 AD, and I made my point that in those days, verse 24, after that tribulation What tribulation? The tribulation that will come upon the temple. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. Now, again, that's apocalyptic language. We read the same language in Isaiah chapter 13. We read the same language in Ezekiel chapter 32. Anytime that God brought judgment upon a nation, you read that language. The sun is darkened. The moon doesn't give its light. The moon turns to blood and all that type of thing. 
apocalyptic language. They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds, not coming from the clouds, with great power. And again, I pointed to Daniel 7, where Jesus, the risen Son of God, takes his place and ascends to the Ancient of Days, who is the Father, to receive what? Authority over the kingdoms. This generation, verse 30, will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. And then he goes on to teach about the second coming. So tribulation, we read about against the temple. That tribulation, friends, that demolition, that raising with a Z of the temple to the ground in 70 AD was the most cataclysmic destruction to come upon Jerusalem in the past, present, or ever again. It was gruesome. Now, we also read about tribulation um, in the seven letters to the seven churches. Remember the church of Smyrna? I know your what? Your tribulation. You're about to be thrown into prison. Some of you are about to die. Jesus says, but be faithful until what? Until death. So you read about tribulation for the church. Jesus threatens the church of Thyatira with great tribulation unless they what? Repent. Revelation 7, verse 14 is another place we read of it. John's given the great apocalyptic vision, which means unveiling. What does he see? A bunch of saints clothed in white robes. The question goes out, who are these? And John says, you know who they are, angel. These are those who came out of the great tribulation. Okay, what is that? The great tribulation, the entire time between the first and second comings of Christ. So we see that the word tribulation is used in different ways in the New Testament. It's a word connected to the destruction of Jerusalem, number one, which happened. Trials of Smyrna, a threat to the church of Thyatira, and the times between his first and second coming, describing the trouble or distress that results of God's people, the result of God's people committed to Christ and his kingdom will suffer tribulation. Look at how John opens the book of Revelation. Chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the what? I'm your partner in the tribulation and the kingdom, which means those are simultaneous realities. The gospel unlocks the darkness and blindness of the nations. And those keys were handed over to the apostles, and we carry them on to this day. So there have been and there will be tribulations for God's people, both from outside and within. Amen? In the first century, bow to Caesar or what? Bow and worship Caesar or lose your head. Is that tribulation? I would say so. What about people in China today? What about people in the Middle East today getting their heads cut off? Is that, is that tribulation? Are we going to be spared tribulation? Sorry. I'd say watching your, your, your husband get his head cut off is great tribulation. That's external persecution. Internal persecution comes from the Antichrist spirit. False teachers that claim that Christ didn't come in the flesh. Now, they don't deny that he never existed. What they claim that he didn't come in the flesh means that 
Um, he wasn't who he proved to be, and that's God incarnate, the only way to the Father. John 16, 33, look at it. In the world, you will have what? Tribulation. He said this to his disciples. That's in the upper room that night. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Okay, and in me, so will you. You have a seat in heaven. Amen? So th th those are the places we read about tribulation. But tribulation, beloved, is never used of a seven-year period before Christ comes back with the church disappearing off the planet. It's not there. You can read it into it, but it's not there. The Bible teaches clearly, beloved, that there will be Christians living on the earth when Christ returns. Look, look at Matthew 13. You'll have to turn there, beginning in verse 24. Parable of the weeds. He put another parable before them. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, when the weeds appeared also, and the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? He said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds, what? First. And bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So notice, the weeds are taken away. The wheat is what? Left. Notice, the wheat is God's elect. That's good seed, believers, saved people, living on earth when he returns. Now, are they to be raptured out of the world before the last day? According to this parable? No. Verse 30, notice. Let both grow until the harvest. Together. Gather the weeds first and burn them. Gather the wheat into my barn. The weeds are taken away. The wheat is left. It's like Matthew 24 when Jesus said, two men will be in the field, one will be taken away, one will be left. If we read that carefully, we, we don't forget what precedes it. Jesus said, as in the days of the coming of the Son of Man, they will be just like the days of Noah. They were giving in marriage, marrying, and then the floods came, and what? Swept them away. Swept who away? Unbelievers. They were taken away in judgment. Who was left? Moses and his family. The same will be in the coming of the Son of Man. Two, two men working in a field, two people in a bed, one will be taken away into what? Context, judgment. The believer left. Same thing here. So let me conclude with this. The secret rapture theology, okay, there's a rapture, all right, we just read it, amen? It's allowed. But the secret rapture theory uh, does not come out of the study of Scripture because there was no teaching of a secret rapture before 1830. So let me read something to you. An authoritative statement as to how it began. Quote, 
There was a New Testament scholar named Tregellis who belonged to the Plymouth Brethren. This is over in Europe. In 1830 and subsequently, he was present at the Powers Court conferences, which were attended by, note this name, John Darby. And other people belonging to that school. This is what Tregellis says. I'm not aware that there was any definite teaching that there should be a secret rapture of the church at a secret coming until this was given forth as an utterance, as an utterance in Mr. Irving's church from what was then received as being the voice of the Spirit. It was from that supposed revelation that the modern doctrine and the modern phraseology arose. Now, Edward Irving was a Scottish preacher. He moved to London, very popular. People pressed in to hear this man. All sorts of people crowded around to listen to him. Now, in the words of D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous pastor from London, he said this, Unfortunately, poor Edward Irving, to be charitable, seems to have become slightly unbalanced in his teaching. He began to speak in tongues, as he claimed, and to preach that God had given him a vision. Now, Tregellis says that as far as he knew, the doctrine of the secret rapture of the church at the coming of our Lord was first taught as a result of a prophetic utterance in Edward Irving's church. It originated as an utterance in tongues interpreted by someone, and indeed, Tregellis emphasized this by saying that this teaching was a revelation given him from God. You know who else said that? Ellen G. White, founder of Seventh-day Adventists. You know who else said that? Joseph Smith of Mormonism. Jehovah's Witnesses. All proclaimed to have been given special divine revelation. So the secret rapture teaching is based on just that. A revelation that God is said to have given the, an individual in the 19th century. Always be suspicious, beloved of anything based on someone's supposed revelation, okay? Quickly, we're almost done. Let's look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also what? Suffering. Church of Thessalonica, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Notice Jesus revealed apocalypsis. He's revealed from heaven, verse seven. So question, when does judgment occur? When Christ comes back, not seven years before he comes back, let alone a thousand years after he comes back. The secret, the secret rapture idea basically says at some point the church will be removed from the world in order that they might escape ensuing tribulation. 
Jesus, John said, I am your brother in the tribulation and the kingdom. So 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, I told you this would be a little different this morning, are two different aspects, beloved, of the same event. You would never read chapter 4 and chapter 5 and then conclude that the catching up was seven years before his return unless you press a presupposition into that text. So if you're a dispensational premillennialist, you're part of this church, I hope you'll always be part of the church and you're always welcome at this church. Don't be handing out and slinging left behind series. <laughs> but if you are premillennial dispensationalists, um, you have a big problem. Not a personal problem, but an interpretive problem. So I believe you have a lot of homework to do um, if, if you're in that position. Because uh, when Christ comes back, it's to judge the world, resurrect bodies, transform the living believer at that moment, and to transform the universe, new heavens, new earth, in which righteousness, what? Dwells. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Surely I'm coming soon. Come, Lord Jesus, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.